What's your name? My name is Howard Bryant. What's your occupation? I am a journalist and I'm a senior writer for ESPN.com. I'm the sports correspondent for National Public Radio's Weekend Edition, and I work with Meadowlark Media. How many books have you written in your life now? I've written 10 books. And what's the name of the new one? The latest book is called, uh, it's a biography of Ricky Henderson titled Ricky, the Life and Legend of an American Original. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Howard Bryant, and this podcast is very exciting for me because when I was a kid, Ricky Henderson was one of my favorite players growing up, and then as I got older, I read a lot of Howard Bryant's copy, and then I got to meet him, and I have always been a longtime admirer of his work, and so this is fun. I get to talk to someone who I really like about my favorite player growing up. Howard Bryant is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Thank you so much for joining me. It is good to see you. It has been way too long since we've got to see each other in person, but I'm really excited about your new book. Oh, thank you, Josh. It's good to be here. It's good to see you again. We we only go way back. When did you start at the Oakland Tribune? I started at the Tribune in 97, 1997 as a prep writer. It's oh, only six years after me. Not that long. I thought it was a little later. There we go. Yeah. 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 So when I first started as a newspaper reporter, the John Shays and the Nick Peters and the Howard Bryants and many others were very instrumental in guiding a young Josh on what to do and what not to do as a reporter, which I will always be grateful for. Plus we had some really good basketball games during spring training. Good games. The highlight of spring training, Arizona spring training at its best. Um, All right. So let's dive into your new book. And I want to start by just talking about the city of Oakland and how that influenced Ricky Henderson and those around him. So for the Henderson family, what did growing up in Oakland mean to that entire family? Well, it's it was a a destination for for Ricky's mom, uh, Bobby, and Ricky was born in Chicago, Christmas Day, nineteen fifty eight, and then the family moved to Pine Bluff, where they were from. She moved back to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Ricky lived on a a nice rural farm with his grandmother, and his mother, like so many other African Americans during that period, made the migration west, and I think that for them the for Ricky, at least, Oakland was far more cosmopolitan than what he expected, than where he was from. Sort of fascinating that he saw Oakland as they, the kids looked at him as being really, really country, having this big Arkansas accent. And everybody associates Ricky with Oakland because very, very quickly he adopted um, 
the the Moors and the style of Oakland. He made it his own, but he's an Arkansas kid at first. He doesn't get to Oakland until he's 10 years old or nine years old. And, and for Ricky, the Ricky that we know now, he is so synonymous with Oakland. The, the amount of talent that was surrounding him, the number of, of players, it was like a sports haven. It's, it's one of the things that I really wanted to concentrate on in the book where people always talk about some of these great places in America where you have this enormous amount of talent. Like you go back to when I did my Hank Aaron biography and we go look at Mobile, Alabama. You had Henry, you had Willie McCovey, Ozzie Smith, Satchel Page, Double Duty Radcliffe. You had all these great players. And when people talk about Oakland, they always talk about all the talent. They talk about Bill Russell and Veda Pinson and Joe Morgan and Kurt Flood and Frank Robinson, Ricky, Dave Stewart, just goes on and on and on. But what we don't talk about was how everybody got there. And one of the things that really makes Oakland what it is, is the Great Migration. We talk about this in so many other areas in American life, but we never talk about it in terms of sports. It was the Migration West, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, that made Oakland this legendary sports town. And you look at Ricky from Pine Bluff. Lloyd Mosby is from Portland, Oregon. Not too far from there, you had Bill Russell from Monroe. Bip Roberts is also from Natchez, Louisiana, not far from Monroe. And all of them end up in Oakland. And for, for the previous generation, for the Bill Russell generation, they all ended up in West Oakland. And you know this because you, you, know, you, you work there as well. The, the school, McClyman's people, it's, it's, the nickname is the School of Champions. But it became the School of Champions because of segregation, because that was the community, West Oakland, where black people were allowed to live. So in this one, one neighborhood within 10 blocks of each other, you had Huey Newton, who founds the Black Panthers, next, living next door to Bill Russell. You had Paul Silas and his whole family. His cousins were the Pointer Sisters. They all lived in the same house over by McClyman's. Then you've got Frank Robinson and you've got Kurt Flood and Veda Pinson all of them in the same neighborhood. And then the next generation in the 50s and early 60s, not too far from them, you had Lloyd Mosby, Gary Pettis, and Ricky all living in North Oakland. It's just incredible to the point where in 1970, Ricky's Little League had Ricky, Dave Stewart, Lloyd Mosby, and Gary Pettis. And they're all major leaguers and they're all all-stars. It's just the amount of talent in Oakland and that level of competition really shaped who these guys were because for them, you know, for us, where we come from, you know, one of your guys makes it. He's a superstar. He's a big deal. In Oakland, they had so many players make the big leagues that they all felt like they could make the big leagues. The, the, the competition was insane. When you set out to write a book about Ricky Henderson and so much of his life has already been documented. Our good friend, John Shea wrote a book a really long time ago. Um, how do you go about finding new material, but also adding new context to old material? Yeah, that's a great question. You have to think about, as you, as you process this, the very first thing when I work on a book is, number one, there's like my, I call it my five steps of anxiety. And number one, do I have an idea? That's the first thing. Ricky's obviously a phenomenal idea. John Shea wrote the Ricky autobiography off base back in 1990. So he hadn't even broken the record yet, the all-time record, I don't think. I think he was just about to approach it. So you've got a great subject. So Ricky hasn't been written about in full form in 30 years. It's perfect right there. 
And he did so much. When I talked to Johnny Shea about it, Shea said, well, when I started this book, the reason why he did it was he thought he was going to get an athlete who was at the end of his career about to break an all-time record who was going to be able to reflect on that record and on that baseball life. He says, what I didn't know was that Ricky was going to play for 12 more years. <laughs> and so for me, there was a lot of fertile material there book-wise. The second step in the anxiety is, can I get it? Is Ricky going to talk? Is there the sourcing? Is there the material? Is there, is there access? Do you have a way to get this project? And for the most part, because Ricky played 25 years, you knew there were going to be a ton of people who were going to talk. So you could walk into a clubhouse, any clubhouse, and somebody would have some Ricky Henderson link, some Ricky Henderson story. So that was the second, clearly. Now, getting Ricky to talk was another story. That was a challenge. We can get to that in a minute. The third step of the anxiety is actually doing the work. And in doing the work, uh, there, was so, there were so many people who wanted to talk about Ricky. And in terms of me adding new material to it, there had been so much written about him. For me, what I found fascinating about Ricky was the life arc, was the story arc. I'm old enough to remember when Ricky was one of the most unpopular players in the game. And people thought he was selfish and he was a me guy and he put up big numbers and he didn't want to play. And the newspaper reporters said he was dogging it all the time. He was faking injury. And I remember that Ricky. But the Ricky that I was faced with in 2016, 2017, 2018, when I started to conceptualize this book, was a very different Ricky. It was the grandfatherly Ricky that everybody loved and they loved telling these stories. And now they miss him and now they talk about him. And he's this combination of Satchel Paige and Yogi Berra. Where did this story happen and did that story happen? And I was thinking, there's a great arc here. There's a great narrative here of how a person can shift in the public eye, stays in the public eye long enough. And let's examine that. Let's explore how he went from this reputation to this reputation. And in between that is going to be a very, very rich story. So for me, Ricky really was a no-brainer. The other piece of it was I myself had really been going through a hard period in terms of these last 10 years. The subjects that I write about are so heavy, whether you're talking about George Floyd or you're talking about Trayvon Martin, you're talking about Ferguson, Kaepernick kneeling, the WNBA protest, you know, the anti-player you know, player movement and the pro-military, all these subjects that have really, really complicated sports. And they take a huge toll on you as well in terms of do you, are you, can you hear yourself? Are you writing about the subjects that are still giving you some sort of, I don't want to say joy, but that you can hear what you're trying to say? And I was getting to a point where I couldn't hear myself anymore. I'm like, I'm not saying anything new here. And I don't know if I really want to write about another protest because the police shot another black kid. And I wanted to have some fun. I want to go, I said, let's go back to doing something that reminds me why we watch these games, why these athletes are so phenomenal, why we're caught up in this everyday sporting drama. And I also wanted to do, you know, ask the question to your other point, can a baseball subject carry a full biography? There aren't as many as you think who have the significance and the weight and the accomplishment and the interest level. And I was also thinking can I find one of those subjects and have half the book not be about steroids? <laughs> so how many guys can you find who fit that category, who fit that description, who are at that top shelf, that top shelf level, that Mount Everest, Mount Rushmore level? And so to me, Ricky was the guy.
When I think about Ricky Henderson, <clears throat> I put him in the, the following categories. There was the young Ricky Henderson who nine-year-old Josh loved to watch play. Then there was the Ricky that goes to New York. And as you mentioned, he wasn't very popular. Then there's the Ricky who came back to Oakland. And I remember as excited as my friends and I were that Ricky came back to Oakland, we were also wondering, well, which Ricky is it going to be? He was hitting like 240 or something. I mean, there was a reason why the Yankees got rid of him. And then he became the Ricky that just bounced around from team to team. And then he became the Ricky that just wanted to keep playing no matter what league it was. I'm going to play forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's dive into him going back to Oakland in 1989 and how the narrative of Ricky started to change with his spectacular postseason and his 1990 MVP. What are the different things that you discovered that kind of transformed Ricky back into this superstar? Well, this is the supernova period. This is the, this is the apex where Ricky turns into maybe the greatest player that any of us have seen. How did that happen? One of the things that was incredible about this was it goes back to Billy Martin in some ways. Ricky is a star player in Oakland during the first iteration. And, of course, Billy Martin, the ultimate Yankee, says to him that you can't be as great as you're destined to be unless you play in New York. You know, the old New York bias. If you make it here, you can make it anywhere. You know, you have to be a Yankee. And Ricky's time with the Yankees was extremely tumultuous. Very, very difficult media market for him. He wasn't Reggie Jackson in terms of being so loquacious with his quotes and everything else. He did not like that amount of pressure on him. He's a pressure player, but he didn't like the outside New York stuff. That the the New York sporting culture that they're entitled to your entire life. It was not Ricky. Ricky's a, Ricky is a private guy. And his 1985 season is one of the great seasons of all time. Ricky comes in. He scores 146 runs in 143 games. It's one of the great years. The Yankees win 97 games, but they don't win the pennant. And then the Mets take over the town in the mid-80s while Ricky's there. And George Steinbrenner is destroying the franchise. So a team that where you have Ricky, Willie Randolph, Don Mattingly, Don Baylor, Dave Winfield, they didn't win. And so now Ricky's got this reputation as the guy who puts up big numbers, but it's a loser. And in 87, when he hurts his hamstring, the first time he's really, really significantly injured in his career, he got no dispensation. And George Steinbrenner made, the, made up the term jaking it. And they all thought Ricky was faking injury. And they thought he could have come back faster. And he got no dispensation. And so now he's got this reputation by 89 that he's a big number player. But not only is he not a winning ball player, he's not even a Hall of Fame player. Nobody, when you go back to the day-by-days, nobody is talking about Ricky Henderson in 1989. And by the way, that was his 10th year. That was his first year of eligibility. They're not even talking about him as a Hall of Famer. And so when Sandy makes the trades, and Sandy Alderson makes the trade to bring Ricky back in June of 89, there was a lot of conversation that this was a risk because the A's were already the defending American League champs. They'd gotten beat by the Dodgers the year before, Kirk Gibson, of course. This team, did, this team really need the headache of Ricky. And it's incredible to think, now that we know what he did, that there was any question at all. He gets to Oakland, he comes back, and from June 89 to May of 91 is some of the greatest baseball any of us has ever seen. He went in full supernova, and he had something to prove. He had to prove that he wasn't just a statistic, you know, a, a, a numbers getter. 
that he was a compiler. He wanted to prove he was a championship-level ball player, that he was the difference maker whenever he stepped on the field. And, and boy, if you were around watching that, I know you were, you got to see something that blew us all away, and it absolutely blew away the Toronto Blue Jays in the ALCS and absolutely blew away the Giants in the World Series. It's interesting you mentioned the term jaking it. It was uh, must have been like eight or nine years ago. Rick Roden was a roving instructor for the Dodgers. Yeah. That's when the isotopes were affiliated with the, with the Dodgers. And he happened to be traveling and met up with the Topes, and it was actually the anniversary of the day in which he was used as a designated hitter by Billy Martin. And I remember asking him about it for an interview. And Rick's the first thing he said was, well, I was actually Billy just using me because he was trying to send a message to Ricky that Ricky didn't want to play that Ricky was jaking it and that sort of thing. And so it's interesting just hearing that word come from you. And I just remembered that interview that I did. Oh, I wish uh, I got a chance. That, and that was the other thing about this book was that I had intended to go into clubhouses across America and talking to everybody because somebody's got Ricky stories and then there was no clubhouse because of the pandemic. And so it really changed the sourcing. I'd, I wish that anecdote was in the book. Because there's so many great Ricky Henderson stories and Tom Verducci famously did the story about which stories are true and which stories are not true. How does that impact your, your reporting, whether it's in clubhouses or whether it's on zoom or whether it's over the phone about which of these stories and the number of people that I've had to tell the John Olerud story did not happen. Um, it breaks their heart, but how do you do that as a reporter knowing that there's so many great stories and some of them have been made up? Well, you don't, you, you allow all of it to be part of the story. You don't get rid of them because they didn't happen because they might as well have happened because they're now part of the legend. That's what legend is. Not all pieces of the legend are true. And instead of trying to play detective, you need to play detective to make sure you know what you're talking about. You need to play detective to, to be an authority, to have a, 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 an authoritative voice on what happened and what didn't as a biographer. But you need those stories because they are part of his story, whether they happened or not. And now you have to go in and examine why, why were these stories part of his legend? Why did they happen? Who told them? Why do they exist? Why was it important to the Ricky story to have all of these stories that never happened? And the reason is because he was such a character. The reason is, is because there were so many things about him that were so bizarre and apocryphal some of the apocryphal stories actually happened. And so you take all of it, and that's why the title, the subtitle is The Life and Legend of an American Original, because so much of this story is trying to decipher what happened and what didn't. So you use it all. You, you, you're, not, you're not offended by it. You use it all. And one of the things that I tried to do with it was, in thinking about Ricky, also talking about the effect of these stories on, on a lot of the other black players, that they hated this stuff. You know, some of it was really cute and quirky and the whole thing, but a lot of it they were offended by because it made it made their jobs difficult. It made it more difficult for them to get jobs because, you know, Ricky was seen as as a clown and that so many of these proud African-American players wanted to be taken seriously so they could get hired. And so when when this is sort of the prevailing attitude of one of, toward one of the greatest players, it sticks to everybody. And so. I thought that was a very interesting place to uh, explore. I thought there was a lot to go on there. The, sec the third part of the book, which is all about the Ricky stories, the third part of the book is called When the Legend Becomes Fact. It's the line from the man who shot Liberty Valance. When the, 
Legend becomes fact, print the legend. And so for a lot of Ricky's career, people printed the legend. And it was up to me to sort of untangle it all and tell the story. You hinted at this earlier, getting Ricky Henderson to talk and being able to, to bounce a lot of these things off him. Explain that process and how much access you were given to Ricky Henderson. Well, the first thing was to come to Ricky and ask him if he wanted to do it. In fact, the origins of this book didn't start with me. They started with Ricky's wife, Pamela, in, in, in 2014. We were at the Smithsonian at Hank Aaron's 80th birthday party. And we are, I'm on stage with Henry and we're doing an event. There's a bunch of Hall of Famers in the audience listening to me interview Henry. And as we leave for the gala, the evening gala, Ricky's wife, Pamela, comes over to me and says, I want you to do for my husband what you did for Henry Aaron. And I'm like, I didn't do anything for Henry Aaron. Henry doesn't, Hank doesn't need me. I was grateful that he gave me any of his time, but I got the point. The point was Ricky Henderson deserves respect that he, he statistically and anecdotally is at the mountaintop of the greatest players. And instead people treat him like he's a goofball. Give this man his dignity, put him where he belongs on the pantheon of great players. And that was a great challenge. And I hadn't really thought about it because I was working on other things. And then around 2016, 2017, I started thinking, you know what? Maybe this is the project. The problem was Ricky wasn't that into it. Now, I caught Ricky on a good day. Ricky gave me four or five interviews, and we sat down down in Mesa. And we sat and talked and talked, and he was fantastic. He was phenomenal. I told him what I was working on. I told him what I was working, that it was going to be a book and not a magazine article. So I was completely upfront with all of that. And then as the book progressed and word got back to him that I was talking to everybody that I could find about him, then he totally switched gears. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to talk. And he wasn't being paid for it because I don't pay for journalism. And Ricky did the worst thing you could possibly do to a biographer. One, he didn't talk. But more importantly, he told all of his people, don't answer that guy's calls anymore. So Ricky totally shut it down. And that was really hard because now where did you go? Now you're, you know, you're halfway across the pond and you're about to drown. You don't have the sourcing, the direct sourcing that you need. Now, you could have switched gears and talked to everybody else, which is probably the way to go. But it's a very, very different book if you're not getting close to the family, if you're not getting the, you know, the really interior sourcing that you need. It becomes a, a secondhand book instead of a firsthand book. And... His wife, Pamela, saved the day. Ricky didn't want to talk to me, but Pamela talked all the time. She was the best resource for the entire book. Without her, the book fails. And without her, the whole thing falls apart. But she was committed to Ricky's greatness. Those two met when she was in the ninth grade in 1974 at Oakland Tech. And they're still together. And it was important to her that Ricky not be treated like a clown, that Ricky be treated with the respect, uh, with Hall of Fame level respect and not just as some quirky great player who happened to be a baseball savant. She made this book happen. And without her, we're not having this conversation. Why was Ricky apprehensive? Was it just because he's the private he's person? Control. He's a control and he's a private person. And we all have skeletons and we all have things that we may not want the world to know. It's like when I talk to Dusty, your first manager yes. in, the, in, in, in the bigs. And I remember Dusty telling me I'll never write a book. 
I'll never write a book because one, I don't lie. And two, I don't know if everything out there belongs out there. I don't know if everything I know should be for public consumption. And when somebody's writing a book about you, you don't have control over that. You don't have control over how they're going to interpret your life. You don't have control over what they're going to emphasize. You don't have control over who they're going to talk to and who gets the floor in terms of the book. And that's what I said to him. I said, I want you to have the floor, but I need you to cooperate in order to do that. And he wasn't willing to do that. Ricky and I haven't spoken in two and a half years. It's interesting about the off the field stuff, because as I'm thinking about this, when I'm a teenager in the Bay Area, almost every day there was a story about Jose Canseco getting a speeding ticket or Jose Canseco doing something or the color of the dress that Esther Canseco was wearing mm -hmm. at some playoff. Um, I don't ever recall Ricky getting into a bar fight, Ricky having okay. a speeding ticket, right? Like all of that. I was always like, what did Ricky do when he went home after games? Well, and that was the thing that Ricky, that's one of the reasons why Ricky was so upset in terms of some of his contract fights with the A's. It's like, I'm actually a citizen. I'm actually a pretty model citizen. I, I actually come to work and I play. And when I go home, my private time is mine. I'm not embarrassing the organization. I'm not embarrassing my family. I'm not doing any of these things. And yet you give all this money to Jose Canseco, who's on the back page every single day. Or he's in the police blotter. This isn't right. So Ricky, I remember talking to Eck about it. Ricky was different. Ricky was on his own program, as Eck used to say. Ricky had his own stuff going on. And, and he was very private. And that was one of the reasons why New York was so difficult for him. Because one of his teammates, Gary Ward, used to say, the man gives you a performance. Why are you entitled to anything else? You know, and I think that the people in New York were expecting Reggie where here's Reggie and he's at Studio 54 and here's Reggie at this club and here's Reggie on page six and here's Reggie just eating up the town and the town eating him up. And that's not Ricky. Final out, ninth inning, Ricky's gone. And he's, you know, he's not the guy that, you know, is calling the paparazzi because he's at some famous restaurant in Manhattan. He's just was never that dude. That just triggered a memory of mine. It's sometime in the late 1990s. I'm covering high school sports for the Oakland Tribune, and it's a football playoff game. I remember it was not in Oakland. It must have been somewhere in the suburbs. And I'm on the sidelines because when you cover high school football, you have to keep your own stats with my clipboard. And St. Mary's High School of Berkeley was involved. And I remember looking at some point, and Ricky Henderson's just standing on the sidelines. And I'm going, mm -hmm. Ricky Henderson's on the sidelines. And at halftime or at some point, you know, I say hi and I'm like, hey, you know, Ricky, what are you doing here? And he said, you know, that one of the coaches was some childhood friend and he was just there to support him. So, you know, guys who scored a touchdown, he's back. He's high fiving guys. But, you know, he was in he was dressed really nice, you know, and and I remember just thinking, like, this is so cool. You know, Ricky's just there supporting a high school friend who's coaching high school football now. Yep. That's I mean, that's Ricky. And that's the thing. Straight Oakland, always being seen in Oakland and some of the strangest places. And because he's just a regular, you know, he's always, he's Ricky. He knows he's separate from everybody because he's Ricky, but he was never distant from that. He always made sure that wherever he went, he took Oakland with him. And that's a big deal because a lot of people, especially a lot of athletes are always told you got to get away from where you came from, that this is a bad influence and that's a bad influence. 
And Ricky's not like that. Ricky, you know, there's a lot of the, the guy he reminds me of or who reminds me of him was Allen Iverson. Same thing. Ricky stayed close to his friends, stayed close to his people and never really disappeared from them. I think about how Ricky Henderson would be perceived on and off the field nowadays. And there's a part of me that thinks with all of his walks, he would be the money ball, you know, darling because of his ability to get on base because he really was ahead of his time with which sabermetrics looks at. At the same time, stolen bases are not valued whatsoever nowadays. But then I also think about the let the kids play marketing campaign and how much Ricky would be celebrated for, uh, for the way that he entertained you in addition to playing. What's your thought if Ricky Henderson was breaking into the major leagues right now? Well, I think that Ricky, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book was because people were talking about Ricky Henderson's legacy. And I'm like, I don't think Ricky has a legacy. They don't play the game the way he played it. There's nobody who came behind. I mean, Ricky has a legacy, an early legacy, the Vince Coleman's of the world and all those base dealers and those fast guys and the Jeffrey Hammonds and everybody else who idolized Ricky and wanted to play the game because of him. But the sport distanced itself completely from what Ricky was. And I talked to Billy Bean about this. And one of the interesting things about the book in terms of Ricky's rehabilitation, we were talking about how he went from unpopular to popular. One of the, one of the main elements that rehabilitated him was the sabermetricians. These guys went through the numbers and said, holy shit, he's better than we thought. And I went to Billy Bean about this, and Billy said, if Ricky played today, you couldn't pay him enough for our advanced metrics. The way we measure baseball players today, he's not just a great player. He is a transcendent player. And during his playing career, those words never stuck with him. They said, oh, yeah, greatest leadoff hitter of all time. Electric, when he is always a, there was always a caveat to it, when he wants to. And yet the cumulative numbers said he kind of wanted to a lot, <laughs> right? I mean, I went to Ricky and Ricky finally said to me, it's one of my, I think it's the last line of the book, spoiler alert, with the last line of the, the before the epilogue. How are you going to steal 1,400 bases if you didn't want to be out there? And when you look at his numbers, this man obliterated the record book. And so I asked Billy, I said, well, who is Ricky today? And Ricky said, well, he's much more closer to Trout, that we would, you know, we would begin to, we would reduce the power, but we would, I mean, we reduce the speed, but we would emphasize the power. Because Ricky, you know, he maxed out at 28 home runs. He never drove in 100 as a leadoff guy, obviously. But Ricky was capable of 35, capable of 40 home runs. He had the power to do it. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's interesting, Billy. But having a Ricky Henderson who is a far more dangerous threat in the batter's box than on the base paths, where he invented the Ricky run, where he, you, you get a walk, a steal, a steal, and you score on a ground ball or a fly ball, you take that away, that's not Ricky Henderson. That's really not the same guy we're talking about. And so he's a unicorn. So part of me is glad he's not playing today. Now, I talked to Joe Madden about this. And Joe said, he disagrees with Billy slightly on this, that Ricky was so good, that Ricky defied stopwatch times, Ricky defied you know, release times for the pitchers, that Ricky would still be allowed to be Ricky today. And, but maybe not to the point of 100 stolen bases. 
but he would still get the green light to go he needed to because he was so much better than everybody else. To the point, Josh, where you look at Ricky. Ricky's career began in 1979, and his last major league at bat was 2003. 2001, Ricky plays his last year with the Padres and goes to the Red Sox in 02. Before joining the Red Sox, from 1979 to 2001, Ricky had stolen more bases than the Red Sox. He had outstolen an entire team during that period. I mean, that's like Babe Ruth legend, like fable stuff. He stole more bases than an entire baseball team during his career. It's incredible. All right, Howard, this has been fantastic talking to you about Ricky Henderson, and I can't wait to read the entire book with, um, with all the details about this. Um, I do want to end by this. You have written now 10 books, and I saw your Facebook post about how you were rejected 14 times before writing Shutout. And before writing Juicy in the Game, you were rejected eight times. And then it blows me away that even after writing nine books, you were still rejected about this book as well uh, a number of times. What's just your overall opinion about persisting in order to do what you ultimately want to do as a journalist? Yeah, my rule number one is, is one, write your story before somebody else does. And there's a reason why we care about the things that we do. Why do you write? You write because you you write something that you want to read and that you think somebody else would want to read. This business is very, very difficult. And I always say that the world is full of obstacles. You can't be one of those obstacles. There are enough people out there telling you what you can't do. So you have to believe in the projects. And I just always believe that there are stories out there that people want to hear about. And you may get rejected. There may be some stories that you want to do. And then the market just says, nah, nobody wants to read it, even though you know it's important. But for the most part, to me, I still, I don't take, I try not to take all of these things personally. When a publisher rejects you, they reject you for their own reasons. Maybe they have a similar book that they just signed and they don't want to do back-to-backs. Or maybe they've found that, found that baseball books don't sell. These reasons may have nothing to do with the actual subject matter or you personally. So what you have to do is really, really believe in the work that you're doing and believe in the stories that you tell and who you're telling those stories for. And in my case, I certainly feel like the, the African-American story in sports and the sports century itself is really important. And at, when you map it out, people go, oh, I never thought of that. But there is an arc to this history. This book deals with the third arc in this history, the third era in this history. The first era is the immigration era, where all the, the Europeans came to the United States and their parents didn't speak English and the kids became American by learning sports, whether it was boxing or baseball, etc. The second era is the integration era, where African Americans are now becoming part of the society and where did they come where was the first place to integrate the first major place to in, uh, integrate the first major institution was baseball and the third era is the economics the economic era the money the free agent era where these guys became super rich where this business you know this sport became a business and Ricky's the epitome of that where these players are now leaving the class of the fan and they are creating a new class they are now in the celebrity class and all of the pitfalls and all of the story that comes with it, the labor issues of it, 
the distance between the public issues with it. All of those things fall into play. To me, that's interesting. And I felt like you just have to stick with that because it's really, really important. And if you do, hopefully good things will happen. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Howard. I look forward to us getting to talk in person again someday soon. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations on this book. Thanks, man. That's Howard Bryant. And this is Life Around the Scenes. 